Sabrina, welcome to the third episode of Oi with the Terror Already. I am your host, Sandra. I'm Danielle. We are so excited to be back for the third episode. We'd also like to give a shout out to some of our more international listeners from the UK and India. Thanks so much, guys. We really appreciate all of you listening the past two episodes. And we can say now that we have uh, listeners from across the pond, which is yeah. one of my favorite phrases. <laughs> yeah, we do. We have listeners from the UK. <laughs> And India. So hopefully more people will listen and we'll get to have more international listeners enjoy the show. Yes. Um, so this week is extra interesting. I don't think we explained the process of how we record this where, surprise, COVID, but we do this remotely. So Sandra records her part from... Uh, the Boston area, and I usually record my part from also the greater Boston area. Um, but now I am in Connecticut, so that's uh, different and weird. I am in my childhood bedroom and talking about true crime. I guess it, it, who would have saw this coming? Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, because uh, we didn't really explain this early on, but Danielle and I are actually childhood friends. We've actually known each other since, I think, the second grade. I was trying to calculate that earlier today because I was, like, adding a description to our Wix website. And I was like, two decades? But I think it's, like, just under, like, almost two decades. <laughs> I think so. I distinctly remember... Crazy? It was first grade or second grade, I think. Well, I was trying. I didn't know if I should calculate from when the first time we saw each other or like when we actually kind of became friends because that would be a few years ago. Yeah. Like we've known each other <laughs> yeah. since elementary school. But we, I think we became better friends in middle school. Right. Yeah. I, I'm remembering a lot of deciding where to sit in the cafeteria at lunchtime. And, like, you sat in the middle part, and I would sit in the side. And basically, that's, like, what middle school was, was, like, choosing the right table. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and if you sat at the wrong table, it was yeah. it was bad. Because our school that. was, like, small enough where I think there were maybe 10 or 15 tables, and that fit our whole grade. <laughs> yeah. No, well, that's probably an exaggeration. <laughs> it was pretty small. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I remember just, like, I don't know, I was always, like, the floater kid, where I would sit with, yeah. like, whoever, like, I didn't really care, but there were, there were clicks, and they were mean. So. I know, I remember, I also sat at different tables, one was, like, near the skater boys, and then one was, like, near the windows with, like, all the pretty people, and then... Yeah, that was basically it. You're either, like, near the windows or, like, near the food, and those are the main options. <laughs> yeah, gotta love, gotta love, like, the small, small, like, country town middle schools, like, the one oh, that yeah. we had. Yeah, yeah we, we had a lovely pond and um, a lot of geese, and, oh, that actually, there was, like, that tiny pond near, um, I guess, the uh, driveway, wait. Do you say driveways for schools? <laughs> the 
road. Well, it was weird because it was like a road that led up because yeah, it was yeah. the it was the middle school, and then if you went down like the other part of the road, that was like the little town. Um, oh yeah. What was it? That, but that was added. Yeah, I think that was added when we were like almost done with middle school. Um, I, yeah, there was yeah. a tiny like almost like a uh, YMCA, but tiny, uh, for our very small town. <laughs> they needed a second community center. Yeah, um, for the kids. And, yeah, yeah, it was kind of cool. I think we went there at one point for gym class, and there was, like, rock climbing or some yeah. random thing. I um, also remember, because we didn't have a track, that's where we would do running for, like, that stupid presidential fitness test where we'd have to run a mile. Wait. Oh, are you talking about the place that was in the back? There was, yeah. like, you you went, oh, I was talking about the uh, that building that they put up. Maybe? Oh, yeah, I know I, I forgot about that track until you just said that. Yeah, they, like, added that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't but, honestly, I kind of blocked it all out. <laughs> like, middle school is awful. Yeah, I mean, I'm always going to remember tracks just because I hated running so much. I was always oh the slowest. Oh, my mile run. Yeah, I would, like, kind of try running, but then just it would end up in a fast walking, basically, with a lot of, like, pumped arms. But yeah. the the hill, one good thing I could say about our school was like the hill was the best for sledding it at was least. <laughs> it was yes it was definitely the place to be when we got a lot of snow and you could go sledding i actually had a friend who broke her coccyx on that hill really she will remain nameless <laughs> yeah is it someone that like i know too uh yes or was she older well a year older okay I think, um, I think I know who it is. <laughs> but yeah, that was a pretty good sledding area. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now we're just talking about our middle school. Yeah, maybe we should move on. <laughs> move on from our, so, our middle school. Our I middle guess school two, days. Yeah, I know. We're both going to be like in the fetal position. Um, <laughs> so I guess if we're continuing the pattern, are think, you going first? I think so. Um, I can if if you want me to. I don't I don't mind going first. Well, I do want you to, but I'm pretty sure I went first last time. Yeah. So it's so. a combination. Yeah, I'll go first. I don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get this week's episode started. So carrying on the kind of folklore um things that I've been talking about. This week I'm actually going to be talking about I don't know if you've heard of her. I haven't before. I uh, did some research, but The Lady in Black, not to be confused with the movie um, oh, with Daniel yeah. Radcliffe. So different, different story. But um, hmm. so The Lady in Black essentially is a woman that was killed at Fort Warren in the Boston Harbor, not to be confused with Fort William from Outlander, different fort, different country. Uh, so, just before the story, here's a little bit of history about Fort Warren. Um, it's actually located at the entrance to the infamous Boston Harbor, and so it's nearly two centuries old. It has a large expanse of grounds that sit atop George's Island. 
uh, which was fortified during the beginning of the Civil War as part of a seacoast defense strategy. And the fort actually took the Army Corps of Engineers over 16 years to build. It's a very idyllic stone structure, and it's actually named for Joseph Warren, who's a patriot that enlisted Paul Revere and sent him on the iconic ride to warn of the British during the Revolutionary War. He was a physician. He was a leader of the Boston area patriots at the time. And later, Warren would later die in action at the Battle of Bunker Hill in North Carolina. That it's name correct. is definitely familiar. Do you not remember fifth grade when we Warren. had to ring that? Oh, Warren. I thought you meant Bunker yeah. Hill. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. That rings the bell. Uh, hello. Um, Warren. Boston history and like the name Warren kept popping up yeah it's um I guess Joseph Warren was like really really well known and Mm -hmm. I can hear my dad lecturing me right now being like yeah he was like he was kind of a big deal during during the revolutionary war but Mm -hmm. yeah so his name kind of came up a lot um in doing some of my research and then the battle of Bunker Hill Obviously, going back to middle school, we did have to reenact that in our middle school social studies class. And all I remember is throwing paper balls at pe- our classmates. And then, I was not there for that. <laughs> and then the what? teacher getting really, really mad. You were there. You were in the class. Wait. Which, who was the teacher? Mr. Oh. <laughs> uh, still doesn't ring a bell. Okay. Well, I remember him mostly because no. Oh no, I remember him. I don't remember the throwing pieces of paper at some. All I remember is him just being super, super mad at us, and then comparing us to his other class that was able to actually do it without like laughing or accidentally hitting somebody in the eye with a paper ball. Okay. All right. Anyway, uh, the Fort Warren grounds <laughs> served as a training camp and a prison throughout the Civil War. It held military officers, political prisoners, and other fighter, like other people that were fighting the Union. Um, its strong walls and heavy armory made it a very secure place to house these prisoners. However, its weapons were never used other than for training exercises. It also played a large part in both of wor- the World Wars, so World War One and World War World War Two. It was a command center of the harbor defenses of Boston during World War One. And then throughout World War II, it was then again a key strategy in the defense of the Boston Harbor, and it stood tall, ready to protect the water from enemy forces. After 1950, it was rendered permanently inactive and officially decommissioned, and the grounds were owned by the U.S. government until 1958, when they were turned over to the state of Massachusetts as a recreational grounds. Today, the historic fort is actually open to the public to explore its rich history and impressive workmanship. And I definitely would love to go see this if we were ever done with COVID. I think it'd be really interesting to see. Yeah, a history field trip. I think we should do it. <laughs> we're close enough. Like, it's in the same state. <laughs> but um, regarding the Yeah, store, that's like another cool thing, like, with the podcast is we can learn about places to go to when everything's over. <laughs> yeah, we can. And yeah. I feel like even Dave would want to go see it I feel like he's a kind of a history nerd but I could be wrong he is (laughs) yeah no it's true so maybe maybe he'd want to join or not either way one day I do want to go see it because I think it'd be really cool you're probably wondering what the lady in black has to do with the fort 
So this is actually the story of Melanie Lanier, a.k.a. the Lady in Black. And it is one of the most infamous stories of Fort Williams history. And apparently, Mrs. Melanie Lanier, I think that's how you pronounce her last name. So her husband was a Confederate soldier that was imprisoned at Fort Warren. The young lieutenant was captured during the, a battle in North Carolina early in the war and taken to the wartime prison for holding. The soldier's beloved wife caught wind of his whereabouts. Some believe that he was able to stealthily smuggle a letter to be mailed to her from the island prison. However, the letter was never recovered. Regardless, she made it her mission to be the heroine and to set out to free her, I guess at the time he was her fiancé, from Fort Warren's walls. So one evening, uh, she put her strate strategic plan into motion. She boldly boarded a boat that would take her to George's Island where she would free, this is where it gets weird because it refers to him as her fiancé and then her husband, so I'm just going to go with husband. So she would free her husband, hmm. and it's been rumored that she found a Confederate ally that housed, that housed her near the prison during the days before she would reach her husband and lead him to freedom. She used this time to communicate the escape plan to him from outside the prison walls. So she boarded a small boat along with her trusty pistol and a rope and the tools she toted to free her husband. She also carried a pickaxe that she planned to use to dig him and other prisoners to freedom. So who is this lady? <laughs> Just casually. You know, okay. she's, she wanted her husband out and she tried. So quietly she sat floating in the darkness towards the prison. She wasn't realizing this was the last time she would actually experience being freed herself. She waited patiently offshore in the stormy darkness at their designated meeting spot. Her husband waited for the perfect moment to signal her, and suddenly she heard her beloved through the darkness whistling a popular southern tune. So she knew that her husband was now ready to set the plan into motion, so I guess that's kind of the, the signal that they agreed on. She then actually disguised herself as a man, and she approached the prison walls, and the plan was to use the rope to hoist Melanie's small body over the imposing walls of the fort. The breach was a success, and she was so overjoyed to see her beloved husband once again that the two reunited and quickly went to work with their co-conspirators. So the story continues. The couple, along with several other prisoners, began the tough and tedious task of tunneling out of the prison underneath a thick stone wall. Using the pickaxe, they carefully cut through the dense earth, they planned to create a tunnel directly into the armory and weaponize themselves to overthrow the guards and escape. However, their seemingly well-concocted plan was ultimately foiled. Their relentless diggling was so loud that it was actually loud enough to catch the attention of one of the Union guards, and he, of course, quickly alerted the other guards, and so a riot began. Melanie found herself in a standoff with a Union soldier, brandishing her weapons to bravely protect her and her husband. Finally running out of patience, the Union soldier actually lunged forward, attempting to grab a pistol from Melanie's hands. The gun fired wildly, and when Melanie looked up, it had actually struck her husband instead of the guard. Tragically, her beloved husband that she was attempting to save died right there before her very eyes, and Melanie's heart was shattered as she watched the life drain out mm. from his body. She was then swiftly arrested for trying to aid her husband in escaping, she was sentenced to death by hanging for the crime of treason. Her destiny quickly went from freeing her husband to heading towards the gallows. Still donning her masculine disguise, Melanie had just one request for her, her execution. She wanted the dignity of dying in a woman's clothing. With no women living at the fort, the guards were only able to find a simple black gown to clothe Melanie for her last moments. The body of mm -hmm. Melanie Laner was buried on the ground still wearing that black dress, leaving the world knowingly that she was the person that caused her husband's death likely tortured her soul. 
her spirit remained restless with the guilt and frustration of her failed attempt and fateful accident. Countless other bodies are said to also be buried on the island and with such a tragic past, it's really no surprise that she might still be on the island. There have been a few eerie sightings for years. So in the weeks and months that followed her death, her image was seen aimlessly walking about the fort. Witness still clad in the same black frog, she longingly moved about, mourning her husband. Soldiers saw and felt her spirit amongst them, stricken with several, with severely broken heart and reliving the day when her plan went horribly awry. Over time, the sightings of Melanie's spirit only increased in frequency. She eventually became known as the famous, known as the Lady in Black, her dark hair, heavy gown swaying in the harbor breeze before her apparition vanished into thin air. Ooh, spooky. To this day, the ghost of Melanie has been spotted around the island and roaming around Fort William, Fort Warren. I knew I was going to say Fort William by accident. Dan Outlander. <laughs> She's been seen standing atop the impressive entrance arches, staring down at those entering, and her immense anger over her husband's untimely death has even spurred her to chase unsuspecting soldiers from the fort. Her spirit really can't seem to find an escape, uh, just as her husband obviously passed away. So ironically, the events of on that day led to the end of both of their lives, a fact that will surely torture Melanie's spirit until the end of time. So I did a little bit more digging. There were a few things that they tr- were try or that have been kind of debunked about the story. Hmm. Most noticeably, if there was a woman that was executed on that island or on that in that fort there would have probably been an announcement or something in the papers and nobody's been able to really find anything but it's still weird that her ghost is still seen or her spirit is still seen even though there's no record of a lady actually dying on in the fort right so that was a little weird to kind of notice like okay there's no record but yet people are still seeing this ghost and apparently she is a nasty piece of work she is mean she kind really? of yeah like she chases soldiers from the fort i think mm-hmm. i've read something somewhere where she like really antagonizes like men so it kind of reminded that makes me sense. yeah it does but it also reminded me a little bit of like emily's bridge of like right. for those of you that don't know that's a bridge in vermont where the spirit really antagonizes men versus woman and scratches them so I thought that was really interesting and I thought that it was interesting that people have kind of tried to debunk it and obviously there's no record again of this woman's death but there's still this ghost that people see today and they've been seeing it her for apparently centuries and right I just thought the story was really interesting because you in history you learn all about these forts and everything but you learn more about like their history and what they did like during the wars but not so much of like oh yeah like a lot of people died in those forts and they might have some really horrible energy. I mean the fact that the sightings have been going on for so long and everything speaks to maybe something did happen like yeah. That's, I feel like it is kind of difficult to find exact evidence for, like, white ladies or gray ladies or black ladies, but I always think about, like, if the story does exist, then maybe it does derive from, like, something. Yeah, I think it does, and I think it's also just really sad that if the story is true, she did try really hard to get her husband out, and she's the one that killed him. That can't be easy to live with to know that you are the reason that your husband is dead, even though it's kind of the whole no good deed goes unpunished kind of thing, too. Maybe the soldiers were so embarrassed that she was able to get there and almost take him away that they erased her from history. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, it did kind of also remind me of Outlander a little bit. Really? 
yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Season, season one? Yeah, when yep. she... In prison. She, yeah, when Claire got Jamie out of... <laughs> Out of Fort William, which I was like, I know I'm going to say Fort William instead of Fort Warren. Like, wow, it's just, I just gonna didn't happen. even remember that. <laughs> so, and also the just the cleverness of disguising yourself as a man. Like, I thought right. that was kind of clever as well. Because no one's going to say anything if they see, like, another dude walking around. But yeah. if they see a woman, nope. they're going to be like... Like, has all the anecdotes of, like, a, one of the classic, like, ghostly tales uh grieving well at that point not widow but almost widow trying to rescue her husband slash fiance then like a potential prison escape and then her getting killed because of that effort and then him accidentally getting killed like it has a lot of um interesting points to it i just thought it was a really interesting story and i've never i've never even heard of of fort warren either and i've yeah. lived in the greater boston area for on and off for like 10 years so i guess i have a new place to take my dad the next time he visits yeah that's true anyway i'm definitely curious <laughs> to hear about your story this week okay i was looking doing research on this for uh kind of a weekish i actually i've heard about this story from other podcasts before i think multiple ones not just one in particular the topic has always interested me. It doesn't involve murder specifically or ghosts, but it's about con artists, charlatans, and I guess frauds have always been something that I was interested in. It's kind of a big topic in television and film. Like I always think of Catch Me If You Can, Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm -hmm. And then now on Netflix, there's a show called Lupin, which I just finished. That's really good. Um, and he's also basically, a, I would describe him as a con artist. So there's something about the topic, like basically a person who's able to get away with whatever like tale they're weaving and lie to people and get them to believe in what they're saying, even though none of it's true, that I've always found fascinating. Yeah. Basically, and she's a woman, which spikes my interest. So her name is Cassie L. Chadwick. Do, do, do. Never heard of her, so I'm curious. Okay. Oh, yeah. Also, there are a lot of names mentioned in this. I, um, to the best of my ability, will try to pronounce things right. But if anything looks slightly French, uh, it's kind of like, I don't know. And I'll try to say it with a French accent, which might make it worse. So I'm sorry. Also, the name Andrew Carnegie slash... Carnegie is mentioned throughout this. I I've heard it mentioned both ways or pronounced both ways, and I looked this up. He's from Scotland, and in Scotland it's pronounced Carnegie, but in the U.S., at least in northern states in the U.S., it's usually pronounced Carnegie. To appease potential Scottish listeners, other people from across the pond, I will say Carnegie. In the spring of 1902, a woman calling herself Casey Elk Shadwick took a train from Cleveland to New York City and a handsome cab to the Holland House, a hotel at the corner of 30th Street and 5th Avenue, internationally renowned, renowned for its gilded banquet room and $350,000 wine cellar. She waited in the lobby, tapping her high-button shoes on the Siena marble floor, watching men glide by in their 
wear bowler hats and frock coats searching for one man in particular james dillon a lawyer in front of her husband standing alone she walked towards him grazing his arm as she passed and waited for him to pardon himself as he said the words she spun around and exclaimed what a delightful coincidence it was to see him here so far from home she was in town briefly on some private business in fact she was on her way to her father's house and would he be so kind as to escort her there he was happy to oblige and hailed an open cab cassie gave the driver an address two east ninety-first street at fifth avenue and kept a cheery patter until they arrived there at a four-story mansion belonging to steel magnate andrew carnegie she tried not to laugh at dylan's sudden inability to speak because he's like why are you here <laughs> and that's that's me paraphrasing and told him she would be back shortly the butler opened the door to find this random lady standing there or as the story says well-dressed lady who politely asked to speak to the head housekeeper so then the butler said fine here's the housekeeper and you can talk to her and cassie went on to talk to the housekeeper and basically told her she was looking for a maid that used to work for the carnegie family she gave her a physical description of what the, quote, maid looked like, and then gave off some details of the, quote, maid's background. But the housekeeper insisted that there was no such person who worked for them. So Cassie thanked her profusely and complimented the spotlessness of the front parlor. She let herself out, slipping a large brown envelope out of her coat as she turned back to the street. She had managed to stretch the encounter into just under a half hour. As she climbed back into the carriage with Dylan, Dylan apologized for what he was about to ask. Who was her father exactly? Please, Cassie said, raising a gloved finger to her lips. He must not disclose her secret to anyone. She was Andrew Carnegie's illegitimate daughter. She handed over the envelope, which contained a pair of promissory notes, for $250,000 and $500,000, signed by Carnegie himself, and securities valued at a total of $5 million. Out of guilt and a sense of responsibility, quote, Daddy gave her large sums of money, she said. She had numerous other notes stashed in a dresser drawer at home. For Furthermore, she stood to inherit millions when he died. She reminded Dylan not to speak of her parentage, knowing it was a promise he would not keep. The story was too fantastic to withhold and too brazen to be untrue. But she had never met Andrew Carnegie. Cassie Chadwick was just one of the many names she went by. Basically, she went there pretending to need a maid. She was trying to get details like, oh, by the way, who's this maid I want to not hire? The only reason she went there was so that this Dylan guy would see her entering the place and then leaving with the envelope with the notes. So then he would tell everyone, oh, she must be the daughter because why would she have these notes after just leaving? Mm -hmm. So there was no reason for her to go there, basically. She just wanted, like, a witness to see her leaving Carnegie's place. She lied to Dylan about being the daughter, but she wanted someone to see her entering 
she, like, he didn't know she was asking about the maid. He just saw her going in and then leaving with the notes in her hand. But she had the fake notes on her already that she signed, pretending it was actually Carnegie signing the notes. So, yeah, this is all a part... This is one of her schemes that she hacked. It's, like, all a part of this elaborate ruse she had. She pretended to bump into her husband's friend just so they could be in a carriage, just so he could see her leaving Carnegie's house. That's... Very elaborate. Yeah, that's like, that's, a, that's exceedingly elaborate. So this is just one of her schemes that she hatched during her lifetime. Yeah. So her background is that she was born in October 1857, named Elizabeth Betty Bigley, the fifth of eight children. She grew up on a small farm in Ontario, Canada. As a child, she lost hearing in one ear and developed a speech impediment, which conditioned her to speak few words and choose them with care. Her classmates found her peculiar, and she turned inward, sitting in silence by the hour. One sister, Alice, said that Betty often seemed to be in a trance, as if she had hypnotized herself, unable to hear or see anything that existed outside of her mind. Coming out of the spells, she would often seem disoriented or bewildered, but refused to discuss her thoughts. Sometimes, Alice noticed her practicing family member signatures, scrawling the names over again and again, like any other normal little girl. Just practice a uh, forging signature. I mean, I feel like we all kind of do that for like our parents, but mm -hmm. maybe not until like high school age. Yeah. So then in 1879, at the age of 22, she launched what would be her trademark scam. She saved up for expensive letterhead and using the fictitious name and address of a London, Ontario attorney, notified herself that a philanthropist had died and left her an inheritance of $15,000. Next, she needed to announce her good fortune, presenting herself in a manner that would allow her to spend her inheritance. To this end, she had a printer create business cards resembling the calling cards of the social elite. Hers read, Miss Bigley, Air to $15,000. I actually have a picture of it. Oh, wow. She basically had a calling card made up to make her look like a wealthy lady. I mean... My note was, so basically equivalent to like a LinkedIn profile or something. <laughs> like, here are my accolades. So weird. <laughs> when people had calling cards and, yeah, the amount of money they owned. She came up with a simple plan that capitalized on the lackadaisical business practices of the day. She would enter a shop, choose an expensive item, and then write a check for a sum that exceeded its price. Many merchants were willing to give her the cash difference between the cost of the item and the amount of the check. If anyone questioned whether she could afford her purchases, she coolly produced her calling card, and it worked every time. Why would a young woman have a card announcing she was an heiress if it weren't true. After this, Betty headed to Cleveland to live with her sister Alice, who was now married. She promised Alice she didn't want to impose on the newlyweds and would only stay as long as it took to launch herself. While Alice thought her sister was seeking a job at a factory or shop, Betty was roaming the house, taking stock of everything from chairs to cutlery to paintings. She would estimate the value of all the belongings and then would arrange for a bank loan using the furnishings as collateral. When Alice's husband discovered the ruse, he kicked Betty out and she moved to another neighborhood in the city. So to backtrack, she was trying to potentially pawn off her sister's belonging. Wow. And then her brother-in-law kicked her out of the house. Wow. 
At this point, she met Dr. Wallace as Springsteen, and of course, the doctor was immediately captivated. Of course. Although Betty was rather plain, it wouldn't be a good con artist story if this didn't happen. Right. So he was captivated by her being rather plain, apparently, with a tight, unsmiling mouth and a nest of dull brown hair. Her eyes had a singular intensity. One newspaper would dub her the lady of the hypnotic eye, and the gentle lisp of her voice seemed to impart a quiet truth to her every word. <laughs> I just like how it's hypnotic eye and not like hypnotic eyes. <laughs> just the one. No, just yeah, the one eye. That's the all other you one need. was all right. Yeah, one's hypnotic, one's normal. Oh, also, I think I forgot to mention this. She is known as the High Priestess of Fraudulent Finance or Cleveland's most famous con artist. Wow. Back to Dr. Wallace as Springsteen. She and the doctor married before Justice of the Peace in December 1883, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer printed a notice of their union. Within days, a number of furious merchants showed up at the couple's home, demanding to be repaid. Dr. Springsteen checked their stories and begrudgedly paid off his wife's debts, fearing that his own credit was on the line. The marriage lasted 12 days shortest marriage ever probably one of the shortest marriages ever yeah it's definitely a contender at this point she decided to reinvent herself and betty became madame marie rosa and lived in various boarding houses where she was scamming merchants and honing honing yes honing her skills traveling through erie pennsylvania she impressed locals by claiming to be the niece of civil war general william <sighs> to come see Sherman, and then pretended to be very ill. One witness reported that through a trick of extracting blood from her gums, she led persons to believe that she was suffering from a hemorrhage. The people of Erie turned out their pockets to collect enough money to send her back to Cleveland, so either they wanted to help her out or they were grossed out by her. When they wrote to her for a repayment of the loans that they gave her, they would get letters back saying that poor Marie had just died two weeks earlier. As a finishing touch, Betty included a tender tribute to the deceased that she had written herself. As Madame Rosa, Betty claimed to be a clairvoyant and then married two of her clients. The first was a short-lived union with a troubled county farmer. The second was to businessman C.L. Hoover, with whom she had a son named Emile. The boy was sent to be raised by her parents and siblings in Canada. Hoover died in 1888, leaving Betty in a state worth $50,000. She then moved to Toledo and assumed another identity, which is the name I mentioned earlier, living as Madame Lydia DeVerry, and continued her work as a clairvoyant. A client named Joseph Lamb paid her $10,000 to serve as his financial advisor, which sounds like a great idea, and seemed willing to do any favor she asked. He along with numerous other victims would later claim that she had hypnotic powers through her one good eye what does it does it explain like, <laughs> the one good eye thing like i don't understand i just i added that part in. okay 
her, yeah, the one eye wasn't mentioned. He just claimed that she had hypnotic... I was just bringing back the one hypnotic eye from earlier. I don't get it. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I guess having hypnotic powers was a pretty popular concept at the turn of the 20th century. Some 8 million people believed that spirits could be conjured from the dead and that hypnotism was an acceptable explanation for adultery, runaway teenagers, and the increasingly common occurrence of young shop girls fleeing with strange men that they met on trains. <laughs> that sounds like a fun time. Wow. Lydia prepared a promissory note for several thousand dollars and forged the signature of a prominent Clevelander and told Lamb to cash it for her at his bank in Toledo. If she refused, he explained that she would have to travel across the state to get her money. He had an excellent reputation in Toledo and cashed the check without any incident. At Betty's request, he cashed several more, totaling $40,000. Eventually, the banks caught on and both Betty and Joseph were arrested. Joseph was perceived as her victim and was acquitted of all charges. Betty was then convicted of forgery and sentenced to nine and a half years in a state penitentiary. She continued to pose as a clairvoyant, where she told the warden he would lose $5,000 in a business deal, which he did, and then die of cancer, which he also did. So maybe she actually was a clairvoyant from her jail cell. I mean, maybe? Or maybe she just... How do you know that? <laughs> maybe she's just a really good actor. <laughs> yeah, maybe she cursed him. Maybe. So from Betty's jail cell, she began a letter-writing campaign to the parole board, proclaiming her remorse and promising to change. Three and a half years into her sentence, governor and future president William McKinley signed the papers for her release. So at this point, she returned to Cleveland as Casey L. Hoover and then married another doctor, Leroy S. Chadwick, who is a wealthy widower and a descendant of one of Cleveland's oldest families. She sent for her son and then moved with him into the doctor's palatial residence on Euclid Avenue, the most aristocratic thoroughfare in the city. The marriage was a surprise to his friends because none of them knew that Cassie existed until he introduced her as his wife. Her history and family were unknown. There were whispers that she had run a brothel and that the lonely doctor had been one of her clients. He divulged only that he had been suffering from rheumatism in his back, which Cassie generously relieved with an impromptu massage, and he could not help but fall in love with her compassion. The new Cassie Elk Chadwick was eager to impress her prominent neighbors, among them relations of John D. Rockefeller, U.S. Senator Marcus Hanna, and John Hay, who had been one of Abraham Lincoln's private secretaries. I guess the cream of the crop. She bought everything that struck her fancy and never asked for what the price was. She replaced the doctor's musty drapes and gloomy oil portraits with bright, whimsical pieces, a perpetual motion clock encased in glass, a $9,000 pipe organ, and a musical chair that would play music whenever someone sat down on it. She had a chest containing eight trays of diamonds and pearls inventoried at $98,000 and a $40,000 rope of pearls. She had custom-made hats and clothing from New York, sculptures from the Far East, and furniture from Europe. During Christmas 1903, the year after James Dillon told all of Cleveland about her shocking connection to Andrew Carnegie, she bought eight pianos at a time and presented them as gifts to friends. Even when purchasing the smallest toiletries, she 
insisted on paying top dollar. If something didn't cost enough to suit her, she would throw it away. When eventually her husband started objecting to her spending all this money, she decided to borrow against her future inheritance. Her Are you okay? I keep hearing banging noises. Sorry, there was a really big flying bug that was like... Somehow oh. got into my apartment and it looked like a cockroach for a minute, but it wasn't. So I just killed it with a shoe. Uh, so if you hear any banging, it's just me killing a bug with a shoe. It was just like this really big flying bug. And I was like, what the fuck <laughs> was that? And oh. sorry, I swore. Oh, that's fine. I was just like, I just saw you walking around. I was like, is she, is she multitasking or something? What is happening? I was trying to get this really big flying creepy bug and I got it. So good. That's what was worth it. Well, I like, I didn't want to just like get up and leave and you like keep reading being like, what is she doing? <laughs> yeah. I feel like we need to, we need to keep this in though. Maybe. Oh, oh okay. Maybe just for comedic. <laughs> Yeah, I'll just mute out the random muffled noises and then leave in the, <laughs> oh, I just killed a bug. It was, it was like this big. It's gross. I've never seen, like, I don't see bugs in my apartment that often. So when I do, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> For the listeners, Sandra held up a size of approximately five inches with her finger as well. Yeah. Demonstrating the size of the bug. It was gross. <laughs> <laughs> But I didn't scream, so... I'm not really at a dramatic point, so that would have been um, confusing. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, please continue. So, yeah, if you couldn't tell, her scams all involved money from various financial institutions. Ohio Citizens Bank, Cleveland's Wade Park Banking Company, New York's Lincoln National Bank, and smaller sums, though never less than $10,000, from as many as a dozen other banks. She would take out several loans, first repaying the first with money from the second, and then repaying the second with money from the third, and basically the money never existed, (laughs) or she was planning on never actually repaying anything. She chose Wade Park Bank as her base of operations, entrusting it with her counterfeit promissory notes from Carnegie. She convinced Charles Beckwith, the president of Citizens National Bank, to grant her a loan of $240,000, plus an additional $100,000 thousand from his personal account can you imagine that now so it sounds like the only reason he did this was because he was an acquaintance of carnegie's so when he saw these like fake notes with his signature he was just like oh that's fine which also sounds problematic but okay yeah just a little yeah and then it basically just goes on to talk about similar situations by november 1904 newton realized that cassie had no intention of repaying the loans she also took out loans from an investment banker in boston named herbert newton I feel like Newton is like one of the most common last names ever. Or maybe I'm just thinking like... He is from Boston, so it could be some connection with Newton. Yeah, with Newton. Maybe if he was that important. Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't really say much about him. Just that she got money from him. He was thrilled to provide her with a loan and wrote her a check from his business for $79,000 and a personal check for $25,000. He was even more pleased when she signed a promissory note for $190,000 without questioning the outrageous interest. So because all this was fake, she was fine with interest rates not being good. By November 1904, Newton realized that she had no intention of repaying the loans or any interest and filed suit in federal court 
airport in Cleveland. In order to prevent her from moving and hiding her money, the suit requested that Ira Reynolds, secretary and treasurer of Wade Park Banking Company of Cleveland, continue to hold the promissory notes from her father. She denied all charges and also any claim of the relationship with Andrew Carnegie, because at this point it wasn't convenient that that was true. Um, it has been said repeatedly that I asserted that Andrew Carnegie was my father. I deny that, and I deny it absolutely. Charles Beckwith, the bank president, visited her in jail. Although Cassie's frauds had caused his bank to collapse and decimated his personal wealth, he studied her skeptically through the bars of her cell. Quote, you've ruined me, he said, but I'm not so sure yet you are a fraud. What? <laughs> to this day, the full extent of Cassie's spoils remains unknown. Some historians believe that many victims declined to come forward, but the most commonly cited sum is $633,000, about $16.5 million in today's money. This ended with Cassie being found guilty of conspiracy in March 1905 to defraud a national bank. She was sentenced to 10... To t I almost said like 10 teen. <laughs> Sentenced to 10 years. Carnegie himself actually attended the trial and he later had the chance to examine the infamous promissory notes. He said that if anyone had seen the paper and had really believed that he had drawn it up and signed it, he would have hardly been flattered. He said pointing out errors in spelling and punctuation. And he said he had not signed a note in the last 30 years. The whole scandal could have been avoided if anyone had bothered to ask if he wrote them. She ended up dying in prison in 1907, which is a sort of sad end to an otherwise pretty eventful and colorful life. Did it say how she died? Nope. Just said ended up dying in prison in 1907. Wow. I just like the ending. <laughs> it couldn't have been me. I have better grammar and spelling. Why didn't anyone ask me? Which is kind of interesting. Like, why... She was able to get away with it for so long because no one bothered to actually show yeah. him. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If they had, like, she probably would have been caught way before. Yeah, so that is the story of Casey Chadwick. Got away with it for a while. Did it say how old she was when she died? She looks like, from this picture, she looks like she's in her 60s. Yeah, I have, a, I have pictures of two mugshots of her. One she looks like maybe in her 40s, and then another one she looks like in her 60s. But this was also in a time where everyone looked 20 or 30 years mm -hmm. older. So she could be 20 or she could be like 68. It's a pretty broad age range. Okay, well, math. Born 1857, died 1907. So this is like 50-something. Hold on. 60. Yeah, I think that's 60. If it's right, it's I'm 50. a genius. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, one of the first times. So you were close. 50, 60. I mean, for 1907, living till you're 50, I think is still pretty good. Yeah. She does look like she's seen some shit, though. <laughs> she probably has. And yeah. she probably did a lot of a lot of shit, too. Clearly, she was a con artist. So, like, I don't know. I mean, they like, what did she do with all the like they said at one point that she was spending some money on expensive or lavish things when she was married third time. But then they don't really say what she was doing with the other... Was she just constantly just trying to get more loans out for fun? Like, it doesn't say that she spent all the money. Maybe she, like, know. hoarded it somewhere? 
stuffed it in like a mattress. Yeah, just buried it. <laughs> yeah, later someone just found all this cash. Yeah, I mean, she could have buried it or given it to somebody that she trusted. Oh, maybe she was like giving it to charity. I doubt that. <laughs> yeah. I doubt she was nice enough to give like the money that she got to charity. No. Yeah, she probably just spent it on things. Musical chairs, which I didn't know was a real thing. Maybe that's where the game came from. It's a possibility. So yeah, that story. Well, definitely an interesting story. Definitely different stories this week. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. I like how we we have that, like Every episode is different topics, like, we go in different directions with it. Yeah, definitely cover, like, a trying to cover a broad range of different, like, right. stories, aside from, like, just true crime yeah. and ghost stories. <laughs> when we were texting earlier, you, were, you told me, oh, my story takes place in Boston. My response was, I don't know where mine is, but I'm pretty sure it's not Boston. Well, I... Just, I think that is something we're trying to like. First, so, we don't have to do it, but just having stories in different locations, I yeah. guess, is what we're aiming. Because I did, I did try to look like internationally, and then I just came across like the lady in right. black, and I was like, oh, this looks interesting, and I was like, oh, it's still in like Massachusetts. So yeah, yeah, there is something about local stories that I feel like can make it more interesting yeah, too. Definitely, especially when it's like, oh, I'm, I live in Mass, and not that far from me that's kind of also like an interesting interesting moment too well this cassie person was born in canada so that's technically outside yeah. the u.s it, just took, it, it took place in cleveland mostly was what you said cleveland then she pretended to be the illegitimate daughter in new york and then some other state but yeah mainly cleveland i guess i wonder how she stayed in the u.s then she was born in canada i don't know just uh, well sounds like apparently her family came over too or at least her sister when she was living with her sister that was also in the u.s when she was trying to pawn off their belongings yeah you did say you were doing international i started started with like i'm gonna do an international story this week and then it just turned into very local because i kept changing my mind (laughs) as i always do i think i definitely know what i'm doing next week and i hopefully won't change it it's probably gonna be harder for me next week because like i got excited about this one this week so this tells me i probably will have no idea what i'm doing next week until like the day before that's all right that'll be interesting. better than me where i'm like i'm gonna figure out my topic on like wednesday and then it's like friday right. i change it and then no that's what will that will happen so, this will yeah. happen so i go for it <laughs> So we hope that you've enjoyed listening to this week's episode of Oi with the Terror already. Uh, We do have our website up and running. So if you want to check that out, that's oiwiththeterroralr.wixsite. So that's W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com slash Oi with the Terror. You can also check out our Instagram page, Oi with the Terror already. And if you want to email us directly, you can do so at oiwiththeterroralready at gmail.com please remember to like and subscribe and to comment um, and to review because we really want to know how we're doing and what you all think. Thanks again so much for listening, guys, and we will see you next week. Bye!